Well, over the last uh, few months, really since last October, a year ago, we've been studying First Peter. And so we wrapped it up a month ago, right before I left. And because of the schedule over the next five, six weeks or so with the interruptions that we have with Thanksgiving and then next Friday and the upcoming Christmas event, I wanted to do something brief, a four-week study that I think should complement our understanding of First Peter. And my plan is to do Second Peter starting early next year. Uh, but until then, I'd like for us to consider what was it like to be a Christian in the first few centuries. First Peter is a book that was written in the middle, kind of the second half in the 60s of the first century. And so I'd like for us to kind of jump into that environment and understand the lives of the first Christians. And to do so, I want to start with a story about Polycarp. It was the year 156, 156 AD, when this 86-year-old Christian, Polycarp, was martyred. He was considered to be the spiritual father in the city of Smyrna. Because of his spiritual influence in that city as the bishop, who was known to be distinguished, who was known to be godly, who was known to be influential as a teacher, the Romans had designated him as the enemy of the state. Now, he was born just a few years after Peter and Paul were martyred. And so he never knew those two pillars of early Christianity, but he did know the Apostle John. The Apostle John, who was the last surviving apostle of Jesus' apostles, he became his personal discipler. And so whatever Polycarp understood as a Christian, whatever he taught, whatever he continued in the city of Smyrna, he learned from the Apostle John. The city of Smyrna was a beach town. It was a beach town metropolis, kind of like Los Angeles. It was a significant city in the Roman Empire. Famous individuals came from Smyrna, like Homer, the Greek poet, which if you've taken Western civilization classes or philosophy classes or poetry classes, you've probably read him or have heard of him. He was from this city. The city was filled with temples. It was filled with bathhouses, the Roman bathhouses like saunas today. It was filled with schools of rhetoric because so many people came to the city to learn rhetoric, Greek rhetoric. It was filled with medicine schools, doctors, famous doctors would be students in this area. And then it had a stadium for entertainment. Smyrna was a strategic city in the Roman Empire, but it was also a strategic city for the gospel. If you remember Revelation 2 and 3, one of the seven cities that receive a letter from Jesus Christ is this city of Smyrna in Revelation chapter 2. And this is the famous verse in Revelation 2 verse 10. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. In some measure, this verse is a prophecy of what would happen to Polycarp 60 years after those words were written. Because of Polycarp's influence as a believer in that city and in the surrounding areas, he was the enemy of the state. He was distinguished, he was virtuous, and he was dignified. And the Romans needed a martyr to make an example of somebody, what happens when you resist the authority of Caesar? 
And so as they began to search for Polycarp, they found two of his servants, young men who were his servants. And they arrested them, they tortured them, until they finally gave up the location of Polycarp. As the Roman soldiers came to Polycarp's house, he invited them in, he offered them a meal, and then he said, can I just pray for a little bit before you take me away? He ended up praying for two hours, and they had to wait. At the end of this prayer, he was arrested, and he was taken to the chief of police in Smyrna. And Polycarp had to say one thing, and do one thing in order to be set free. He had to say, Caesar is Lord, and then offer incense to Caesar. But Polycarp refused. Because through that confession and through that act, it was an indication that you are throwing your allegiance to Caesar above Jesus Christ. This is what Polycarp said in response to the governor who tried to force him to recant. He tried to force him to curse the name of Jesus. And this is what Polycarp said. For 86 years I have served him. And he never did me wrong. How can I now blaspheme my king who saved me? The governor responded to this confession by saying, I have wild beasts and I will feed you to them. And Polycarp said, bring it on. Then the governor said, I will roast you in the fire. And the polycarp said, what are you waiting for? Do as you wish, let's go. When this interrogation was finally over, the herald came into the stadium and he declared, Polycarp has confessed to being a Christian. And the crowd began to chant, he is the destroyer of our gods. Bring in the lions. For whatever reason, the lions weren't found. And so they bound Polycarp to a stake. And the people gathered in the stadium began to gather sticks and create a pyre and lit it on fire. Polycarp stood there as the fire began to burn under his feet. And this is what he said as his final words. Oh Lord God Almighty, the father of your beloved and blessed son, Jesus Christ. I give you thanks that you have counted me worthy of this day and this hour, that I should have a part in the number of your martyrs and the cup of your Christ to the resurrection of eternal life. Polycarp died that day in the year 156 at the age of 86. He was the last surviving disciple of the apostle John. And as John taught Polycarp, The truth of eternal life, that reality, that doctrine, sustained him in this horrific execution. But the idea of eternal life was a foreign concept in the Greco-Roman world at this time. Belief in eternity wasn't widespread. There is a tombstone that says the following. I was not, I was, I am not, I care not. That was the sentiment of the people that lived in the Greco-Roman world in this time. They did not anticipate eternity. They did not believe in eternal life and the resurrection. Now, not to say that some people didn't, but the majority view, the religious view, wasn't to believe in eternity, even though there were hundreds of religions in the Roman Empire. 
The people did not understand the afterlife. They, for them, it was shrouded in mystery. For the Romans and the Greeks, the resurrection and eternal life, as I quote, was the most spectacular religious doctrine regarding the Bible and it, regarding the body, and it was an unthinkable idea. Nevertheless, as Christians began to talk about eternal life, as they began to teach that there is life after death, because of the illnesses that ravished the Roman Empire, especially in these years, because of the premature death that was constant in the Roman Empire, people began to be intrigued and drawn to the truth of eternal life. It seemed that Christians were offering something unique, something distinct, and something that wasn't reserved for the elite, for the religious people, for the virtuous people. That's typically what happened in ancient religions. The most elite, the wealthy people, they're the ones who are preferred by the gods. Whereas Christians were offering this doctrine to everyone. And this Truth, the introduction of eternal life as a truth, as a doctrine, the Christ, in the Christian faith, began to shake the Roman Empire to the core. But it wasn't the only thing, eternal life wasn't the only thing that the Christians introduced into the religious environment in the Roman world. The emperor claimed to be Lord. He claimed to be the kurios. You've probably heard that Greek word. That's the word in the New Testament that refers to Jesus as Lord. When you know from the book of Revelation, Lord of Lords, that's kurios. That's the word there. But the emperor is the one who claimed to be Lord. In Acts chapter 17, we find ourselves in the city of Thessalonica, another major and cosmopolitan city in the Roman Empire, also a beach town. And here... Paul and Silas come into the city and they begin to preach Jesus as Savior. And what we see happening in response to the people in the city is the opposition, verse 5 says, became jealous. And they took some wicked men from the marketplace and they formed a mob and they set the city in an uproar and they began to attack the house of Jason because he welcomed in Paul. And they were, bringing, they were seeking to bring him out to the people. When they didn't find Paul and Silas, they began to drag Jason and some of his brothers before the city authorities. And this is what they were shouting. These men who have upset the world have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them and they are contrary to the decrees of Caesar saying, there is another king Jesus. The people were upset that Paul and his associates were preaching Jesus as king, Jesus as Lord. In Revelation 19 and 16 is the famous phrase, King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus is the one who then adopts this title for himself, and that was an opposition to the imperial title. In the city of Ephesus, for example, the goddess Artemis was called Kuria, the feminine version of Lord. And yet, in the book of Ephesians, you'll find Jesus being the Lord. You get to the Gospel of John, you go to chapter 4, and you are in the story of Jesus with the Samaritan woman. And at the end of that story, the Samaritan woman goes to the city of Sikar, her village, tells everybody in that village that 
come meet Jesus. He's told me everything about my life. The people come out, they meet people, the people talk to Jesus. And then this is what they say. He is truly the savior of the world. They said this because every single day they would pass a temple. The temple of Augustus, Caesar Augustus, that would have a title, the savior of the world. The people in the Roman Empire constantly read this sign. Augustus is the savior of the world. And then Jesus lands into that city and talks to the Samaritan woman and talks to the villagers of Sikar and says, no, I am the savior of the world. And then you fast forward a little bit and you are talking about now the idea of sonship, deity, the son of God idea. Caesar Augustus became the emperor after his adopted uncle. He was adopted by this man, Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar was assassinated in the year 44 BC. And when he was assassinated, Caesar found an opportunity to become the emperor. And so he became the emperor on the heels of this assassination. But what he did is he said to people, when Julius Caesar died, he became a god. And he deified him everywhere, propaganda style. But by saying that he is a god now, he became the son of God. And so coins were minted and spread throughout the Roman Empire that Augustus is the son of God. And then succeeding emperors began to adopt that same title for themselves. And then you open the gospel of Mark, verse 1 of chapter 1, and this is what it says. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. And the gospel of Mark in chapter 15, verse 39, ends this way. When the centurion looks at Jesus hanging on the cross, this is a Roman centurion looking at Jesus and he says, truly, this man was the son of God. Mark opens and closes his gospel with this title, not applied to the emperor, but applied to Jesus as the true son of God. And then the church begins to form in the book of Acts, and the church begins to call themselves Ecclesia. Their church is named today Ecclesia, which just means a gathering. That's all that word means. But they adopted that term, but that was a term that was used by the Greeks to refer to a collection of people, a group of people gathered together as citizens, as politicians in a Roman city and yet now Christians begin to adopt that for themselves because they say no we are the true church we're the true gathering as we associate with God so you begin to see these new ideas being either reinterpreted redefined or introduced for the first time into the Roman empire this is what the Christians did at the very beginning at the infancy of their movement And my desire for the next four weeks is to transport us into that environment. To enter the first 300 years of Christianity, the first Christians. What was it like to be a Christian in that environment? We talked about persecution. We'll talk a little bit more about that. We understand that a bit. But what about the Christian, the early Christians view on ethics, on finances, on women, on gender, on homosexuality? on transgenderism, on abortion, on entertainment. I want to talk about those elements because it gives us an insight into the early Christians' understanding of Scripture on those very controversial issues. And for them, 
It wasn't something that was popular. To be a Christian wasn't popular. It wasn't something that was convenient. It wasn't safe. And so when we begin to study the lives of the first Christians, we need to understand their environment and what they were dealing with on a daily basis. And yet when we look in those first few hundred years of Christianity, we will see that a lot of our traditions, our Christian traditions, go back to the very beginning of Christianity. They weren't simply formed in the Reformation as some people think or say. No, a lot of what we do, a lot of our rituals and and traditions and values and convictions, whether they're doctrinal or the methods of how we do ministry, the philosophy of ministry, go back to these early days. And this is how one author described the influence of the first Christians on the rest of Christianity. In the period from the first Christian generations to the end of the second century, more important decisions were made for the whole of Christianity than were made from the end of the second century to the present day. That's a significant statement. And so it's, I think, valuable for us to understand what decisions were made and how they shape us today. Well, I want to begin by talking about the context of the first Christians. The context of those first Christians is simply this. They were a non-entity. The Romans did not recognize Christianity as a religion. They didn't recognize them as anything more than a Jewish splinter sect. From the Roman point of view, the Jews were just a group of people within greater Judaism who declared Jesus is the Messiah. Now, there were about 24 different Jewish groups in this time period. And you can imagine 24 different religious groups within the same religious, let's just say, denomination. There would be some conflict and disagreements. And so they were at odds with each other. They were constantly bickering and arguing about who the Messiah is, when he would come, what he would be like, and so on. And so from the Roman point of view, this is just one of those sects within Judaism, not a separate religion. To some degree, the words of Gamaliel in Acts chapter 5, verses 35 through 39, reflect the sentiment of the Roman leaders toward Christianity. This is what Gamaliel said to his fellow Jewish leaders. Men of Israel, take care what you propose to do with these men. He's talking about the apostles. For some time ago, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men joined up with him. But he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After this, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew up away some people with him. He too perished, and all those who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men. Leave them alone. For if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God... You will not be able to overthrow them or else you may even find yourselves fighting God. This was the idea that this very influential and respected Jewish leader, Gamaliel, who taught Paul actually, said about the early Christians. But that's kind of how most people in leadership felt. And they kind of hoped that this new group, this new sect would fizzle. That this movement would actually disappear. The Romans couldn't tell the difference. 
until AD 380, this is the first time we get a sense of there's actually an edict by a Roman emperor, Theodosius I, who makes an edict in Thessalonica and makes Christianity the exclusive religion of the Roman Empire. So in the first century, the Romans viewed Christians as just other Jews. Why? Because in Acts 2.46, we read that even the apostles continued their daily Jewish prayers in the temple. They didn't stop doing those Jewish rituals. In Acts 3.1, it says that Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour to pray. These were first Christians who were Jewish Christians, and so they were still continuing the Jewish rituals. They continued to follow them. You can see some of that in Acts chapter 10. When Peter is praying and God sends down a blanket with all these different foods, right, animals, and says, eat. And what does Peter say back to God? I'm not going to eat unkosher food. That's what he says. And God says, what I've declared holy, do not call unholy. What I've declared clean, do not call unclean. And so this happens three times and then disappears. And Peter kind of comes up from his prayer and is confused. Why in the world is God trying to make me not kosher? I've been kosher all of my life. I'm not a big fan of shrimp. What is happening here? And all of a sudden, Cornelius' story takes place. Because this is the introduction of the bringing in of the Gentiles into the church. Until then, the majority of the people were Jewish people who were evangelized and who were beginning to believe in Jesus. And now you have the bringing in of the Gentiles And God did not want the Jewish leaders to resist the inclusion of the Gentiles into the church. Well, as this continued, in the year 49, Jesus is arrested, executed, and then he ascends to heaven, most likely in the year 30 AD. In the year 49, so about 20 years later, in the city of Rome, the Christians have already taken a root. They are present. And they are arguing with the Jewish people about who the Messiah is. And the Emperor Claudius at this point gets so confused about all this fighting between Jews. He says, I'm going to expel all the Jews out of the city of Rome. And he does that. All the Jewish people are expelled from the city of Rome because he doesn't want to take the time to figure out what is the difference between a Jew and a Christian Jew. So they all leave, and a Roman historian who's not a believer tells us this was done on account of a dispute over Christ. Well, in the year 89, so 40 years later, after the Jewish war, after the Romans come into Jerusalem and destroy the temple and kill about a million people, according to Josephus, who's a historian of the time period, the Jewish people who want to continue to study the Old Testament, they move to the city of Jaffa. Jaffa. It's just about 15 minutes south of Tel Aviv. And they set up shop over there. And they have a meeting in the year 89. And they begin to talk about what do we do with those who might be deviant in their theological convictions from mainstream Judaism. And so they come out with this statement. They come out with this prayer It's on the screen, and it's called Birkat Haminim. And it's translated as the curse against the heretics. The curse against the heretics, and this is what they write. For the apostates, let there be no hope. And let the arrogant government, that's a reference to Rome, be speedily uprooted in our days. 
Let the Nazarenes, which is a reference to Christians, and the Minim, that's the word for heretics, be destroyed in a moment. And let them be blotted out of the book of life and not be inscribed with the righteous. Blessed art thou, O Lord, who humblest the proud. And this prayer would have been prayed three times a day. And so some historians begin to look at this prayer and say, well, this is the beginning of the separation between the Jews and the Christians. Because there's this official statement, an official prayer that takes place in this year. Most likely what happened is there was an evolution, a development of this separation between the Jews and the Christians. This is the beginning, most likely. But it it takes uh, probably two centuries to take effect because we see Christian apologists like Justin, the martyr, for example, you might have heard his name before, write and encourage people to not meddle with the synagogues, to stop going to the synagogues. It's as if he's pulling them out of their old religion. So we know that Christians kept on going and kind of deferring to their previous ways. So we know that separation took a little while to take place. Nevertheless, from the leadership point of view, these are just a bunch of Jewish people arguing about who the Messiah is. But as we move into the second century, the Romans slowly begin to take note. And they begin to pay attention. And this is how they viewed the Christians. Second century writer, Roman historian. Christians are a class of men given to a new and a mischievous superstition. One of the governors writes this in the early 100s. Christianity is a depraved and an excessive superstition. Tacitus, who was a Roman historian, also second century, says this. Christianity is a disease and a pernicious superstition. So about 90 or so, 80 years after Jesus, this is how the Romans began to evaluate Christianity. And these negative comments would begin to become more and more prominent In second century writers, even though there's still some confusion, are they truly Jews or are they now a different religion? This is the context of early Christianity where it's a developing religion, a developing movement called the way at some points in the beginning. But then the opposition, those who are hostile to Christianity, begin to call them Christians. The word Christian appears three times in the New Testament, and it's always on the lips of those who are hostile to the Christians. The Christians did not call themselves Christians initially. So this is kind of the beginning of the first Christian experience. Slowly merging out of Judaism, sometimes arguing about who the Christ is, but ultimately being noticed by the Romans as they form their community, which is our second division, the community of the first Christians. And what I want to note for us this evening is that the community of the early Christians was multi-ethnic. The reason that matters is because the other Greco-Roman religions were not. Judaism was not primarily multi-ethnic. You were committed to the religion of your Parents of your ancestors. It was an ethnic religion. And so now to introduce a new movement that professes itself to be trans-ethnic, multi-ethnic, was a, uh, something that was foreign and something that shook 
the Roman leadership. Even the Jewish people in the Old Testament had to be told to welcome and not abuse the foreigner in your midst. So even there, there was this monolithic understanding of who is a Jew. And so we have a writer, a Roman writer in the middle of the second century. Celsus is his name. And this is what he writes. The Jews made laws according to the customs of their country. And they maintain these laws among themselves at the present day. And observe a worship which may be very peculiar, but is at least traditional. In this respect, they behave like the rest of mankind. Because each nation follows its traditional customs, whatever kind happened to be established. Concerning the Christians, he says that if we were to ask them where they come from, or who is the author of their traditional laws, they would answer nobody. In fact, they themselves originated from Judaism and they cannot name any other source for their teacher and chorus leader. Nevertheless, they rebelled against the Jews. So he, as a writer against Christianity, in fact, he would write against Justin Martyr about the same time period. He is viewing Christianity as a bad religion, as a bad movement, because they're not keeping to a tradition. They have no unique origin that is attached solely to themselves. A historian comments on this quote as follows. It is not simply a debate between paganism and Christianity, but a debate about a new concept of religion. Religion belonged to a people, and it was bestowed on an individual by the people of nation, from which one came or in which one lived. That is what it meant to be a religious person. You were committed to the gods of your people. And if you know Roman history, the second century, there's a period of the seven good emperors. The last one was Marcus Aurelius. You may know that name because of the movie Gladiator. How many of you have heard of Gladiator or seen Gladiator? Okay, some. The movie starts with talking about Marcus Aurelius. He's perceived or portrayed rather positively, but he was a great persecutor of the Christians. Because he saw this deviation from worshiping the Roman gods and the famine and the wars that took place in his time period from 161 to 180 AD, he blamed on the Christians. And so the Christians were beginning to be persecuted because they were multi-ethnic. And you think about verses like Colossians 3.11. There is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man. But Christ is all and in all. Or consider Galatians chapter 3, verse 29, 28. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free man. There's neither male nor female. For you're all one in Christ Jesus. Christianity destroys all ethnic superiority. At the foot of the cross, everybody is equal. That is a new thing that is introduced into the religious environment by the Christians. That's why I would say the current social justice movement, whether you call it BLM or anything else, is never going to accomplish its goal. Because only Christianity, only Jesus Christ and the cross of Jesus Christ is able to destroy racism and racial superiority. The multi-ethnic idea can only be peacefully accomplished within the church. That's what Ephesians 2 is all about. 
Our pastor is about to get there pretty soon. That's what it's all about. And so I hope you understand that. Because unfortunately, lately, even the Christians have paid more attention to the physical than the spiritual component of our faith. In Romans chapter 14, verse 17, Paul says the kingdom of God is not about eating and drinking. In other words, it's not about the physical. It's not about what you eat or drink or what you look like. But righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. I need to remember that this is what should unite us. Our common bond to a spiritual salvation, to a spiritual savior. And so there is no conflict, there should be no conflict that arises from any ethnic differences. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.16, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. In other words, we don't pay attention to the physical appearance of a person and make judgments whether I will or I will not associate with somebody based on the physical appearance. Rather, in this context, he says, we have all been reconciled through Jesus Christ. This was a radically new way of understanding yourself and your religious convictions. There was an inclusion in the church. But on top of that, there was also socioeconomic diversity. So there was a multi-ethnic diversity, but there's also socioeconomic diversity in the church. Sometimes people think that the Christians, the first Christians were all poor disenfranchised, they were women, they were slaves, kind of the, like the, the people that weren't respected or didn't have a good life in the, in the Roman Empire. But when you begin to look carefully at the New Testament and at the other Christian writings, you realize that that wasn't the case. That early Christians, the church of the first Christians, had a cross-section of the socio-ethnic and socio-financial identity. You had slaves and you had also freedmen who were former slaves. And then you had freemen who were never slaves. And then you get into the second century and we find out that some Christians actually were senators, which was the highest office you could have in the Roman Empire other than the emperor himself. There were Christians. One was named Apollonius. In the second century, in the book of Acts, P, the Acts of Peter, it tells of multiple senators and multiple noblemen who were Christians. There's a man named Florinus who was actually so wealthy that he was elevated to the stature of an emperor, Commodus. And he was a Christian, even though he was associated with the emperor. The church historian Tertullian says this, the outcry is that the state... The Rome is filled with Christians. That they're in the fields, in the citadels, in the islands. They make lamentation as for some calamity that both sexes, every age and condition, even high rank, are passing over to the profession of the Christian faith. So he's saying the Romans are complaining that their Christianity is spreading into every fabric of society. We can't contain them only to be the poor and the oppressed. They're now infiltrating every class in our empire. And we know that even from the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians, we read about a man named Gaius. Gaius was so wealthy that he hosted multiple churches in the city of Corinth. 
a man, Manchus Felix, said, we Christians do not take our place among the dregs of the people. In other words, not all of us are poor. Some of us actually are significant and influential in the society. He wasn't saying that pridefully. He was just saying that Christians have begun to influence multiple levels of society. Clement of Alexandria, who's a famous Christian writer for the mid-second century, discusses Christians who owned much property. Little letter called The Shepherd of Hermes, in the second century, chastises believers for not being generous enough with the poor. Justin Martyr talks about rich Christians needing to care for the poor. In other words, that gives us an indication that there were wealthy Christians and some of them were stingy. What's interesting to note is that not all were. In the year 165, under the reign of Marcus Aurelius, Rome experienced a major plague, killed about a third of the population. And in that time period, we read about a famous doctor, his name was Galen, who fled the city for safety. He didn't want to be caught up in this plague. But what the Christians did is they fled into the city. And they began to take care of those who were sick and those who were dying. And they began to introduce the care for the sick. And the Christians were the first to create hospitals. They were the first to create orphanages. They were the first to adopt what was called exposed babies who were just left at the doorstep of your house so that a barbarian, uh, I'm sorry, um, a gladiator or a prostitute would pick them up and raise them up to be a prostitute or a gladiator. Christians would walk the streets and pick up these babies, adopt them and give them a home. This started with the Christians in the first and second centuries. This is the Christian ethic. But we see that Even in Acts chapter 2, when the Christians are gathering together and they begin to sell property, their possessions, and they begin to share with one another. In other words, Christianity from the very beginning was a religion that would care for others. It wasn't a stingy religion, even though some Christians might be. The reason that Paul wrote the letter to Romans it's in the beginning and at the end of the book, chapter 1 and chapter 15, it's very clear. He's asking for money in order to take it to Jerusalem, which the church in Jerusalem and all the Christians just went through a famine. And he's raising funds from other churches in order to help these poor Christians. He's also raising money to go to Spain where nobody has preached the gospel until that point. And Paul ultimately gets to Spain, which was considered to be the farthest point of the Roman Empire, and he preaches Christ there. In Philippians chapter 4, we see that the Philippian Christians multiple times brought financial gifts to Paul through various uh, individuals to support him while he was in prison in Rome. And these Christians weren't rich. 2 Corinthians 8 describes the Philippian Christians in this way. They were begging us with much urging for the favor of participation and the support of the saints. And they did this beyond their ability, out of their accord, out of their deep poverty. It doesn't matter how much money you have, a little or a lot. The Christian ethic has always been we care for others. 
That's what the church is all about. You won't find in the New Testament a welfare state. But you will find that responsibility to care for others, that burden is placed on individuals, not on the government. And yet, there has to be some correction. And so in 1 Timothy 6.18, Paul says, Instruct the rich to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, and be ready to share. Barnabas was an example of this. We talked about him toward the end of our study in 1 Peter. And he was wealthy. And so he sold what he had and he gave it to the first church and they were able to care for others. So when you look at the early church, what you find is a group of people who are introducing a new concept into their world. The afterlife. The resurrection through belief in Jesus Christ. There is no other way into the afterlife, into the eternal life, into the resurrection. You have to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That he is the one who will ultimately judge every single person. And that we need to confess our sins and bow before him and acknowledge that we have been rebelling against him. And we've been living our own lives and we have not lived in a way that demonstrates that he is the king of kings and lord of lords. And we have been paying allegiance to other gods and have been naming other people Lord and King, and sometimes ourselves, serving ourselves more than serving Him. But when a person recognizes their sin and confesses it and asks for forgiveness, God says He will forgive. And that is the beginning of a journey with Jesus Christ. And that takes you on a path that ends in eternal life and the resurrection and life forevermore. The the Christians brought this into the Greco-Roman world, into a pagan environment. But they also brought a new ethic. An ethic of loving one another, no matter what you look like. And an ethic of caring for one another, no matter how much money you have. This was the beginning of the church. These were the first Christians. And I think it's important for us to pay attention to the details in the New Testament and ask ourselves, am I living like a first Christian? Am I actually modeling my life according to the principles of the New Testament that we just talked about? Or is this history for me? Or is this something that is so distant uh, that I need to find a new way to live my life and that doesn't apply anymore? Well, we're going to continue our study over the next few weeks and look at the issues I talked about in the beginning. What was it really like to go to church in the first century? What was the church service like? And what were they doing there? And how does our church service compare to the first Christian church service? Let me pray for us as we end. Lord God, we're so grateful for the lives of the first Christians. We know that so many of them were martyred because they refused to confess the emperor, Caesar, is Lord. They stood firm on the principle and on the confession that Jesus is Lord. It's a confession that all of us need to continue with our lives. I pray for those who have made that confession. And I just ask that we would live like it. That our lives would demonstrate that we submit our lives completely to your Lordship. And those who may not have confess that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords, that he ultimately is the only savior and he is the final judge. 
that your Holy Spirit would move on the hearts of those individuals and would bring them to a point of repentance and allow them to enter the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Lord God, bless our study for the next few weeks and allow us to evaluate our lives against these heroes of the faith, some of whom we know and some of whom we don't, but faithful people like Polycarp who died for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen.